much like a fish who is surrounded by water all day long does not know the value of the water that they find themselves in, Americans who are born and raised in freedom and do not know anything else struggle to recognize the value of that freedom, right? Because we tend to focus on the challenges facing the U.S. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Uriel Epstein, is the CEO of the Renew Democracy Initiative. They are building a movement to renew democracy in the U.S. and around the world through commentary, events, and direct aid. RDI was co-founded and is chaired by Gary Kasparov, the Russian dissident and longtime world chess champion. I was glad to have the chance to ask Uriel about his story and how he came to lead RDI, how they sorted out a mission, and what they are currently working on. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Uriel at the Renew Democracy Initiative. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Uriel, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, so thanks so much for having me on. My background is kind of unique. My parents are from the former Soviet Union. My dad's from Moscow, mom's from Kiev. So I actually grew up speaking Russian. I didn't learn English until I was, you know, five or six. And in fact, my parents were pretty strict about that. When I'd come home as a kid, if I ever tried to speak to them in English, they would pretty much just ignore me. And that's what I tell all of my immigrant friends who are now having children of their own. That's pretty much the only way to make sure that your child speaks the family language. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for that because I do now speak Russian fluently and I use it frequently for work. So then I did my undergrad at Yale focusing on international relations. And as many undergrads are wont to do who don't necessarily have any marketable skills, I went into management consulting. Uh, and so I worked at the Boston Consulting Group for a bit, and then I worked in tech strategy in sort of the micro transportation space. So think companies like Uber and DoorDash and such. And then I had a pretty big switch where I went from tech strategy into the nonprofit world. And this was, you know, very serendipitous. It was very unexpected. When I was still in college, I had founded an organization having to do with Israeli-Palestinian issues as well as civil military affairs. It was meant to be a space for nuanced conversation about the U.S. role in the Middle East focused on Israeli-Palestinian issues, while simultaneously I was trying to bridge this civil-military divide in the U.S. because I'd realized that so few Americans actually engage with the military. And if you don't understand something, you tend to mistrust it. And so that was sort of the thinking behind trying to pull these two things together. It so happened that one of the supporters of that organization happened to sit on the board of this brand new, for all intents and purposes, social club called the Renew Democracy Initiative. And so he reached out to me and he knew that sort of our political views and philosophies aligned and that I was really frustrated with what I saw happening in the public space and my inability to do anything about it from the private sector. And so he reached out to me. He connected me with the chairman and founder of RDI, Gary Kasparov, who I have to be honest, was a pretty big name in my house growing up. I joke, and I don't know that I've ever actually said this to Gary directly, but in English, there's kind of this common thing where if someone is kind of putting on airs and, you know, you don't think they're as smart as they pretend to be, you know, you'll say something like, oh, well, you're no Einstein. You're no rocket scientist. You're no yeah. rocket scientist. In Russian, you could legitimately say you're no Kasparov. And that's something that, that was kind of said growing up. So anyway. He was the chess champion for a long, long time. 20 years. 
His analysis has been spot on since then in politics. So basically, a little about five years ago, I joined the Renew Democracy Initiative, and we've built it out now to uh, an organization that I think really is a player and can have an impact in the global stage in the fight between freedom and tyranny. Well, I, I want to definitely talk to you a lot more about RDI, but I want to ask you a few more things about your biography just to make sure I know who I'm talking to. And I wasn't clear where you were growing up, where you were asked to speak only Russian at home. Aha, uh-huh, good question. I was born and raised in New Jersey. My parents have this interesting path through the world where they went from the former Soviet Union, from Kiev and Moscow to Israel where they lived for 10 years. They met in Israel, as a matter of fact. A lot of people actually don't realize this, but in the late 70s and early 80s, Israel was undergoing hyperinflation of about 700%, right? You know, your paycheck at the end of the week would be worth a hell of a lot less than it was at the beginning of the week. And so my dad came to America in 1982, worked as a cab driver in Manhattan, and my mother joined him in 85. What were they by profession in the Soviet Union and in Israel? Well, my dad was a chemist and then a professional weightlifter, believe it or not. So my mother wasn't able to go to university because as she likes to be crook in her nose. So in the Soviet Union, there was horrific anti-Semitism. It was very, very common for both my father and my mother to be beaten up, to be attacked, my dad especially, for being Jews. Uh, my mom, and so there, it was common understanding in the Soviet Union that basically if you are a normal Russian or a normal Soviet citizen, you could get into university if your score was X. If you're a Jew, however, the minimum score had to be X plus 20 or, you know, whatever it is. So my mom wasn't able to, to go to university traditionally. She did correspondence school and then she became an engineer. My dad was an, a weightlifting coach in Israel and a teacher. And then in the U.S., he was a cab driver in Manhattan for well over a decade. And my mother was a computer programmer. So sort of very traditional immigrant stories. It doesn't make me sad that my ancestors came over a little bit earlier from similar parts of the world, from Ukraine on my dad's side, a more turn of the century. One of the best things that happened to, to my family was coming here, honestly. Honestly, that's true of a lot of people. And that ethos has been a really key part of my work at RDI. This recognition that it's those Americans who are essentially Americans by choice, right, who choose to come here, who choose to join the American experiment, who are the ones who are most patriotic. They're the ones who realize how valuable what we have here really is. And it's kind of those stories that I grew up with that we kind of want to share with a broader American public. That makes sense. Tell me about that decision after Yale, after studying foreign policy, to do management consulting. You're not the first person by a long shot who I've talked to who is sort of in the progressive ecosystem now, who is in this fight, but who got training after college in that sort of arena. Tell me about that decision and then about what you did learn doing that kind of strategy in business consulting. Yeah, you know, I think it's become common to kind of shit on management consultants. and Especially among activists, I think. But I also have found some really, really skilled people who picked up a lot from the practice of that kind of work. Well, so that, that was actually going to be my argument, that, that I actually think there's a lot of value to it. One can make any number of arguments around sort of the perverse incentives that elite kind of well-educated young people are presented with coming out of college. And I think those arguments are valid and well worth having. But that having been said, the training that I received at the Boston Consulting Group was unparalleled. I wish that there were more people in the nonprofit space who had that kind of background. Because what BCG does that I think is unique, I mean, you can learn Excel anywhere. You can learn various analytics, uh, you know, tactical things like that almost anywhere. And, And I think you should, you know, and I encourage everyone, by the way, on my staff to learn Excel and to take some of those courses. But the thing that BCG does that I think is something that has really stuck with me is how to think about problems and approach them in a frameworked way, where I think, especially in the political and nonprofit space, we tend to think about issues sort of as they come up. And we approach them either, you know, just one by one or just sort of in almost a knee jerk way where we try to address any problem, either we'll address it head on, but we'll do it in kind of a haphazard fashion. And what I think BCG does that I appreciate it is 
teaching you one specific frameworks that you can use to address problems, but two, just teaching you the importance of having a framework to begin with. And when I say a framework, I don't necessarily mean that you have a this incredibly proactive strategy where you think years ahead or necessarily even months ahead, but rather you just understand that when you're faced with a challenge, right, whatever it is, So let's say that challenge is polarization in the U.S., that you need to have sort of A, a clear hypothesis for what might be causing that, and then B, a clear approach for how you're going to promote your hypothesis, test your hypothesis, and understand whether or not you're right or wrong. And I think that kind of experimental approach to nonprofit work is in a lot of ways missing from our industry. I think that's true. I also think that there can be a reflexive anti-business attitude that is not always helpful. It's not always helpful politically, and it's not always helpful because businesses like other human institutions do things that are good and they do things that are bad and capitalist incentives can be valuable and they can also have lots of problems, pollution and things like that. So sometime understanding what business is like in this country is not a bad idea. There's a Russian expression that your arm only bends in one direction. And I understand that our listeners aren't able to see me, but what I'm doing essentially is my arm is bending towards me, right? Like that's the direction your arm bends. And that's human nature. Humans are self-interested. That's the nature of humankind. And we may wish for humans to be more altruistic. We want that people to be generous. And I wish that that were a more core element of human nature, but I think it's been proven time and time again that it's not. And so At its core, having a system where people are able to pursue their self-interest in a way that will in turn benefit society is one in which I think we should ideally all agree. In my mind, at least, that's kind of the core of what of what capitalism should be. And so I am actually really concerned about what I see as kind of the demonization of a system which Again, it's it's not inherently moral or immoral. It's merely a system that we believe organizes society in a way that is most effective. And two, we can set up that system in a way where people can pursue their interests and where we can address some of those negative externalities without actually throwing the baby out with the bathwater that kind of goes to your point where I think a lot more folks in our space should have business experience. They should understand how the private sector works and how, quite frankly, the vast majority of Americans and the vast majority of people worldwide make a living and live their lives because most people don't work in the nonprofit space. They work in a for-profit business. Nevertheless, DoorDash and Uber are unusual steps for someone who is then running a democracy group. Tell me a little bit about those two companies and and what your role was there. (laughs) A little bit unusual. So I transitioned from BCG to Uber, and I was at Uber fairly briefly. This was when things were kind of hitting the fan. The culture there wasn't necessarily the best, but ultimately, I believe Uber is a force for good in the world. I say that because, look, my dad was a cab driver. I grew up on stories of my dad in the 80s and early 90s of what it was like for him in Manhattan. He has had everything under the sun happen to him. He has been mugged at gunpoint, at knife point. He's had customers run out on him. He's been attacked. I mean, it's kind of almost an infinite number of unfortunate situations in New York. And the fact is, is that creating a system that enables drivers to have a bit more safety for both drivers and passengers, where things are tracked online, where the location is is consistent and where payment is rendered online in a predictable fashion and where, you know, the driver doesn't have to hold thousands of dollars in cash, right? Because that was one of the challenges was that my dad would, would get paid in cash. He'd have thousands of dollars and therefore, you know, a clear incentive for people to try to mug him. I think that's all kind of for the best. But the other thing that really struck me about companies like Uber and DoorDash, which ultimately I'm a big believer in is they minimize the friction inherent in an open market. In other words, when you leave a job, you have a few months where you need to make some money. You don't necessarily want to commit to a new thing yet. You're figuring out what it is you want to do or whatever, but you still need a paycheck. That is where these types of industries, market-based industries, really add value. And so from that point of view, As a whole, the way that they're structured, where they enable people to weather those more challenging 
periods in their lives and then leave, right? And then go on and do whatever it is that they want to do. I see that as a net good. And meanwhile, it also is a net good for folks living in urban areas who may not necessarily want to have cars. I live in Virginia. I do not currently own a vehicle. And to be honest, the only way that I can not own a vehicle is because of the existence of Uber, Lyft, and these other types of ride-hailing apps. And then as for what I was doing in those companies, even though the transition itself was not traditional, the role that I was playing was a fairly traditional post-consulting role. I mean, I was doing strategy and operations and analysis and, you know, essentially trying to figure out the most efficient way to match supply with demand so that there was not going to be too many drivers so that if there are too many, if there's too much supply, nobody's going to make any money. But if there are too few drivers, then needless to say, people's wait times skyrocket, prices skyrocket, and then that's not good for the rider. And so trying to get those two sides of the market to match effectively was really the crux of my job. I remember pre-Uber in DC, just having a horrible time with the unreliability of the taxi companies. They just didn't always show up when they said they were going to show up. It was just hard to get a ride. And I've talked to lots of Uber and Lyft drivers, and and they're generally not super happy with what they take home. Like they would like to make more money. They would like to have a bigger piece of the pie. I don't know enough about the, the economics of the company and whether things are being fairly shared. But I do know that as a consumer, it's certainly been a big breakthrough for me to be able to get a ride easily and to see how far away someone is and all of the the software. Yeah, I think that's kind of the key position I have with respect to to these these companies is that you can disagree on the margins. Should drivers be getting 10% more, you know, 20% more, whatever it is, uh, you know, should the companies be changing that ratio? Maybe. I I'm not privy I've not worked in these companies in in years now, right? I'm not privy to the economics anymore. So I have no idea what what that looks like. The arguments that I've been hearing around kind of the categorization of these folks as employees versus contractors, I am very, very firmly in the camp that that it is perfectly appropriate to have these folks be categorized as contractors. And in fact, that it's that's in everyone's interest. The way that these companies are structured is the, the whole hypothesis. Uber, DoorDash, all these companies would not be able to serve those drivers if they were required by law to categorize drivers as employees. And so it would essentially destroy an entire category of individual. And so I'm very open to arguments around how we should have more of a public safety net for some of those individuals who are drivers and and others to ensure that they do have some of the basic services that otherwise traditional employers would provide. I didn't mean to hijack our interview all into the politics of Uber and so on, (laughs) but it's interesting and it tells us a little bit about where you're coming from. One I'm curious about is as the child of immigrants from Russia and Ukraine, how you viewed the rise of Putin and then how you viewed the rise of Trump. Mm, Really good question. This is where RDI comes in. This is the core ethos of RDI as an organization is we have built out this entire program called Frontlines of Freedom, partially inspired by Gary's experiences, by my experiences, recognizing that dissidents and immigrants have something really unique to offer to the American people, which is tragically their experiences. I'm very grateful for having been born in the U.S., but I grew up on these stories of the Soviet Union, of Russia, and so forth from my parents. And so Gary came out against Putin in 2001 in an article in the Wall Street Journal where he first recognized the dangers Putin posed. Meanwhile, right around the same time, I was starting to hear it. I was a kid at that time, but I was starting to hear it from my parents. They started looking at this, quote unquote, former KGB colonel. And the reason I put quotes around the word former is because Putin himself has said that there is no such thing as former KGB. Once you're KGB, you're always KGB. You see the rise of this guy and it's deja vu. It's a return to practices of the Soviet Union where you see Putin consolidating power. You see him eliminating rivals. And right now we're reaping the rewards of that. I mean, for years, the free world had an opportunity to push back on him and to call his bluff. And we never did. 
And now on February 24th, 2022, Putin made a fairly rational decision that the free world wasn't going to respond if he went ahead and invaded Ukraine based on all the other data points he had where the free world failed to respond. And then as for the rise of Trump, it's again deja vu. You have a man here who consistently calls his opponents things like vermin, enemies of the people. And he uses language, whether consciously or unconsciously, that directly reminds me of the Soviet Union. It directly reminds me of Russia. It doesn't have to be explicit. None of that is necessary for the truth to be that Trump, knowingly or unknowingly, is echoing the same tactics and the same language as countless Russian dictators before him and as Putin himself. And we can even see that, by the way, in, in the way Trump speaks about other world leaders, where he has no respect whatsoever for European leaders, right? People who try to govern democratically. And yet he'll frequently speak in pretty glowing terms about Putin, about Xi Jinping. You know, after October 7th, he spoke in pretty glowing terms of Hezbollah, right? One of the terrorist groups in the region that's dominant in Lebanon as a quote unquote, smart group of people. That's the type of man that Trump is. But the thing that scares me most isn't Trump himself, although I am pretty concerned about that. It's this movement, this ideology that Trump has he hasn't brought it into existence in America, but he has, I think, given it new life, unearthed it. And again, it's nothing new, right? I mean, you think back during World War II, there was a, a 30,000 person Nazi rally in Madison Square Garden. And I want to be very clear that I'm not making any comparison here to Nazis. I'm simply saying that there exists in America and in every free country an undercurrent of authoritarian sentiment that is brought forward either by opportunists or by people who tragically, for whatever reason, feel marginalized and therefore feel justified in leveraging some of these quasi-authoritarian tactics. Trump has sort of given life to that. And I got to be honest, even if Trump goes away tomorrow, I'm really concerned about where this ideology goes from here. So how did you respond personally? You've studied foreign policy, you've come from a particular family, you see this happening. It's not just in Russia and in the United States, it's in lots of countries in the world. What are you thinking that takes you out of this more conventional career into the fight? Exactly that. I will never forget, Trump is nominated in 2016, he wins. I'm still in the private sector at this point. I don't transition until late 2017. But I had this naive notion of like, well, there are a lot of experts out there and they're going to figure it out. This will get sorted. There's a lot of people out there and most of them are so much smarter than me. Uh, they'll get it done. I'm going to sort of keep my head down and, and focus on, on doing what I'm doing in the private sector and, you know, putting bread on the table for me and my family. And then in late 2017, I realized that there was nobody who was going to come to our rescue. I started listening obsessively to various podcasts and conversations similar to this one. And I don't actually watch broadcast TV very much, but I would obviously read articles online and so forth. And, and I just came to this realization that like, there isn't a solution to this, that this is going to be the fight of my generation. Igor Kerman is a member of our board. When he reached out to me and mentioned this new organization that he was involved with, it felt serendipitous. Did he know you before that? What, what yeah. was the connection? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So the, yes. So he and I have known each other for about a decade. He was a supporter of my other organization that I'd founded back in college dealing with Israeli-Palestinian issues. And that org was, was purely a passion project, right? We were all volunteers. There's nobody on salary. It was something we believed in. And it, to this day, it's a fairly prominent uh, organization actually at Yale and West Point. It was entirely random, almost entirely serendipitous. It was serendipitous to the point where like, if it were a TV show, I wouldn't believe it. Like it would just be unrealistic. How had he become connected with Kasparov and, and RDI? You know, it's a good question. I, I don't know that I know all of the details. From what I remember, after the Trump election, you had a number of sort of public intellectual types, especially never Trumpers, come together in what sort of they semi-jokingly referred to as like the club of the sane, 
uh, sanity club. The small sane club, yes. The small sane club, that's right. <laughs> and just talk and, and brainstorm ways in which they could try to take back, whether it was parts of the conservative movement or, or ultimately the country, from the clutches of, of what ultimately became, you know, an increasingly authoritarian movement. Igor just kind of became, joined and became part of those conversations. That group evolved and grew over time. And the mission of the organization has evolved and grown over time. But back then, there was no real organization. It was, it was literally just that social club. I was tasked with helping, at least, to, to sort of figure out how to give this group form and function and, and create it into a tool that can actually combat uh, some of these authoritarian trends. So did you have to form it into a, an actual organization? Did you have to incorporate it? Did you have to hire? Did you have to raise money? What was on the task list when you... So they had already incorporated. They had done the, the basic stuff. So like the basic documentation, including the initial seed grant of $100,000, those things were covered. But then where I came in was, yeah, like initially thinking through, all right, what is it that we're actually going to do? Like, what are the action items of the organization? Like, terrific. We're politically agreed. Like, the organization had this manifesto of, like, the core principles that they that everyone agreed on. And there was this kind of huge negotiation, which principles should be included, which shouldn't. Try to imagine, like, a bunch of, like, public thought leaders, journalists, academics, and, and political leaders negotiating a document of this nature. So my role wasn't that. I was not the political guru Instead, my role was, all right, well, how do we put that into action? How do we translate the principles that we all agree to into some form of action? And so that was, I think, the core part of my role of, like, of actually defining the actions that the organization would take. And then, yeah, of course, as part of that, fundraising is a significant percentage of my job, developing partnerships, building coalitions, hiring, all of those things became the core of, of the role, as with sort of any other chief executive type role. How did fundraising go? How did building partnerships go? And so on. Maybe I'll start with the growth of the mission behind the organization. You know, that was the first thing was defining what our theory of change was going to be. How are we actually going to affect the outcome of whatever it is we wanted to see? Because you talked about like having a hypothesis and then an approach when you were talking about the training. Did you go after that here? That is exa exactly, yes. That, that was exactly, so my approach when I started this was first and foremost thinking through, all right, what are our hypotheses? What do we think we can do? And then let's test them and let's see what works and what doesn't work. So my first hypothesis, and you know, th this went through a process. I mean, my first hypothesis was around that basically we were where we are due to a failure of civic education in America, and that therefore RDI would play a role in trying to build out more effective civic education in the U.S. So terrific. So you have the hypothesis. So then what you do is you build out the pieces of that hypothesis. Well, what would go into this? Well, in order for us to be able to do this, we would need educate experts who are actually educators themselves. We would need experts around education administration. And then we'd need to go through distribution. So how do we actually get this into classrooms? And what are the age groups that we're targeting? You know, are we talking kids? Are we talking high school, college, and so forth? And how are we going to scale this, right? Because it's fairly easy. And I think a lot of groups sort of do this where, you know, they'll take a couple of the famous folks that are involved with them, and then they'll send them out one by one to classrooms to give speeches and so forth. But like, to be honest, that's not a very scalable model. And almost any sort of change agent will tell you that a one-off intervention, right, a one-off speech, a one-off thing with a few exceptions is never going to to drive huge change. It might have an effect for a few weeks and then that effect will fade. Well, the only way to have a consistent impact is you actually have to have multiple interventions over a period of time. So we went into that, all right, first hypothesis, civic education, here are the different components we have to do. So then I sort of, I started building out and seeing what we could do in those individual components. And again, this was before I had a team, it was before I had any colleagues. It was me treating this as a consulting project and, and thinking through, all right, like what are the different pieces that I have to pull together? And sort of the two places where this failed, this hypothesis failed, was one, our board, the folks involved in RDI, our colleagues, our friends and family, so to speak, were not educators. 
in, in the traditional sense, right? We're not high school teachers, not principals, not administrators. So there was no competitive advantage. There was a lot of famous folks. There were people who were brilliant, but not specifically in the education space. So that was part number one. And then the other part is a fairly wonky one. But in order for this approach to have worked and for it to have been scalable, I initially hypothesized that we would have to engage at the level of either the state or the school district. If at the very least you can engage at the level of the school district, that means, you know, you hit maybe even a few schools, uh, you know, you're able to hit a bunch of classrooms, et cetera. That's a scalable model. What I found out was that that's not actually how it works. The only way that this actually works is you have to hit it at the level of each individual teacher. And that just was not a scalable model for an organization as small as ours. There was never going to be a world in which we would be able to get into even dozens of classrooms, right? Forget about hundreds. The first hypothesis did not work out, which brought us to hypothesis number two, which was, all right, instead, we want to influence national discourse writ large in magazines, newspapers, TV, and so forth. And here, we had the advantage where we did have a clear kind of distinguishing competitive feature, which was that our sort of group of friends and family was fairly prominent. And they were diverse. They were uniquely diverse. We were one of the relatively few groups that had a really unique array of people from both the left and the right coming together and agreeing on core principles, and then where they disagreed, either agreeing on kind of rules of the road for how to debate those disagreements in a way that's respectful and appropriate, and or B, saying like, all right, look, we disagree on issue X, but we're not going to talk about that. We're going to focus on these other elements that we agree on, right? Like hypothetically, I'm making this up. We may disagree on abortion, but we agree that election denial is bad. We're going to focus on combating election denial and on shoring up people's faith in the American election system. So here, this hypothesis also failed. And the reason it failed was because the tribes that existed on both the left and the right were so harsh, were so strong, that as soon as somebody said something that they disagreed with, or even worse, they collaborated with someone who was part of the quote-unquote enemy, i.e. the other side, if you've done that, you're no longer a member of my tribe, right? You're not one of us anymore, so why should I listen to you? You saw this a lot on the right in the early days of Trump, where, you know, you had folks like Michael Steele, the former head of the Republican National Committee, who would no longer be welcome, probably inside the building of the Republican National Committee that he once used to run. And or, or the former nominees of that party, the Romneys and the McCains. I mean, it's astounding. And the Bushes. Yeah, uh, the Bushes even. Yeah, uh, the successful nominees. That's right. The successful yeah. ones. No, absolutely not. I mean, we spoke with President Bush recently and no, it's very, very clear that this is not their Republican Party. It's a very different beast. By the way, some of these challenges, we do see them also on the left. I'm not saying that they're comparable because, you know, I don't I don't necessarily think that they are. But but the challenges exist and we have to recognize them and we have to excise them. We have to focus on core principles that are at risk right now that we have to get behind and we have to fight for. So that second hypothesis did not work out. And then there was something that was very interesting that happened that led us to our third hypothesis and the one that we're operating under today, which was that Gary won two awards in the span of three months. The first award was an award from generally, you know, a left-wing organization. Most folks, it's a pretty recognizable left-wing organization. It's called Epic, at least in the private sector. You know, it's fairly well recognized. They do a lot of work also on AI and other things. It's, it's a good friend of ours, Mark Rotenberg, who runs it. And so he received one, an, an award from Epic. And then the next award, which he received a few months later for the same exact work, was called the Barry Goldwater Award. <laughs> sure. I'll let you draw your own conclusions as to the politics of that award. Barry Goldwater would have been pro-democracy. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's sort of where it comes down. But Despite being one of the fathers of the recent conservative movement. That's right. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And and then, and, and simultaneous to that, I was also thinking back to my own experience, where I grew up hearing about the U.S. as this sort of shining city on a hill, this country that had saved my parents from the ravages of communism uh, a place where they were able to go and that as Jews where they could be safe. And that kind of instilled in me this belief of the U.S. as being a force for good in the world. 
it led me to this conclusion of a way, well, how is it that Gary, one, can break through people's partisan shields in a way that folks who are actually members of those respective camps can't? And what I concluded was obviously, look, his chess fame certainly didn't hurt, but it wasn't the chess. It was the fact that he was a dissident, that people recognize that here is a man who risked his life to oppose dictatorship in Russia and who ultimately went into exile because of it and because of his actions. And therefore, his credibility was kind of beyond question. If I remember, beaten in Russia. He was beaten in the streets in 2011 or 12. I don't remember the year exactly. But yeah, the, he was one of the leaders of this large protest march. And there's this pretty horrific video of police beating him and like four police, four Russian police literally physically carrying him onto a uh, police van. What I don't think people here grasp, and hopefully we won't have to, but because our level of political violence at the moment is pretty low. We've had periods in our history in regions of the country where that kind of thing happened frequently, but we do not want to go down the road to where opposition is killed or beaten. That's just completely unacceptable. It, it, that's exactly right. And now this speaks to our core hypothesis where my parents were able to convey to me this belief in America that I think is lacking in the US, right? Where you see folks where either if you're on the right and you, you believe that you can sacrifice certain core liberal, democratic, liberal in the classical sense of the word, principles on the altar of like conservative judges or, you know, whatever, or you're on the left and there's this belief sort of that America is fundamentally evil, right? That America is inexorably a force for ill. Yeah, I, I think there's almost been a unconscious collaboration in tearing down the United States that's happened in different ways with different intentions on the left and the right. On the left, much more like, let's pay attention to the bad things we did so that we can reform them, but nonetheless pointing out our sins so strongly that is maybe not that helpful. And on the right, a different thing. There is a very big difference between self-criticism and self-flagellation. And self-criticism is good, it's respectable, it's important, and I think it's something that is actually kind of unique to the U.S., where we are willing to be self-critical and therefore we are willing to improve. Bill Clinton famously said, right, there is nothing that is wrong with America that cannot be fixed by what is right in America. But self-flagellation, on the other hand, is dangerous. One, it's, it's ineffective, but two, it's, it's actually counterproductive. It demoralizes people. It makes them believe that change is not possible, that we can't move forward. That And what it does is it, it kind of makes this broader argument that like, look, who cares? There's no difference between the US and China and the US and Russia. Like everyone's bad. So you know what? I'm just going to throw my hands in the air and give up. Right. And just say, forget it. They're all bad. And by the way, that's one of the key arguments that I hear sometimes for when people are willing to support Trump is they will say, look, everyone's corrupt. Everyone's bad. Trump is no better or no worse than any of these guys. So why not support him? Right. Like, so, yes, we know he's bad. But so's the other guy. It's really hard to listen to those kind of arguments because you have to be able to draw a distinction you were starting to tell me about the two awards that Gary won and what the strategy was that was coming out of that. So I was saying that basically there are two things that came together for me. One, you know, Gary having won these awards from both left and right, and then sort of thinking about my own upbringing and how it is that I had a different perspective than many of my peers. I'm still relatively young. I'm, I'm 32. And I, I see a lot of my friends when I, I have kind of a different perspective. On, on a lot of the political trends that are happening in the U.S. And so it got me to thinking sort of what's the origin of that difference. And what I concluded was that the origin of that difference came from this external perspective on the U.S. In other words, much like a fish which, who is surrounded by water all day long does not know the value of the water that they find themselves in, Americans who are born and raised in freedom and do not know anything else struggle to recognize the value of that freedom, right? Because we tend to focus on the challenges facing the U.S., which are manifold, right? Like there's so many different problems. 
uh, and we focus on those problems. And to a point where we start believing that, you know, those problems are the end all be all. And then we start saying that the US is no better or worse than Russia, China, and these other authoritarian countries. And I believe it's that international perspective that that allows folks to recognize, like, look, there are problems in the U.S., but the U.S. ultimately is still one of the freest countries in the world. We should always be working to improve it, but we shouldn't be throwing out the baby with the bathwater. So this realization led us to found what we call the Frontlines of Freedom program. And what we did was we brought together now over 100 dissidents, people who have risked their lives for some semblance of freedom in their home countries from about 40 different oppressive countries to communicate what ultimately amounts to a really positive message about the inspirational qualities of American democracy. That's sort of the key philosophy behind this program. So we launched the program initially in partnership with CNN. Uh, on CNN, it's called Voices of Freedom. We called it Frontlines of Freedom. It was a series of videos and op-eds intended to, to convey this message of, look, America is ultimately a force for good, but it faces threats. It faces challenges and ones that must be addressed. That was the crux of that program and the message. And since then, it's grown tremendously. The director of this program, you know, is a close friend of mine. Uh, he's a pastor from Zimbabwe, Ivan Mawadire, or he's one of the people who led the protest movement against Mugabe, the then dictator of Zimbabwe. On the one hand, he succeeded, right? Mugabe was deposed. On the other hand, he was arrested, tortured, and he now lives in exile here in the U.S. So he leads the program. And so now, you know, with him, we've just started a online uh, media platform and a television program that we call FOF, Frontlines of Freedom TV, where we try to highlight the nature of the global battle between freedom and authoritarianism and the importance of the U.S. and American citizens of, one, defending what we have, right, defending our own democracy, being motivated to fight against the threats facing it, but two, simultaneously recognizing that there exists a huge difference between the challenges we face and the challenges faced by the people of China, Russia, and so forth, right? Because in the U.S., police brutality is a problem. In Russia, it is the system. And that's kind of one of the key messages that we try to convey to folks. So you had had talked about the hypotheses that had failed. What makes you think that this hypothesis, which seems wonderful to me, the idea of bringing dissidents in and, and highlighting their view as something that maybe people could hear and be changed by, what makes you think that's working? So... There are two different ways to judge the efficacy of a hypothesis, right? So you have qualitative metrics. So these are somewhat anecdotal, and they're really important in the early days of a hypothesis, right? So when you first start out, your primary metrics, unless you're a huge company like Coca-Cola or Apple or, or you know, even a huge nonprofit, maybe, you know, more like the National Endowment for, for, for Democracies or, or, or things like that, generally your first metrics are going to be qualitative in nature. You don't yet have the money to run quantitative surveys and things like that. So these are things like, one, anecdotal feedback that you get back from people, examples, these stories that you hear from people who attend your events, who read your content, and so forth. And we were very lucky that one of the first projects we did in this program was a partnership with CNN, because that gave us actually a, a good bit of data. We got a lot of feedback right away of people who are listening and watching our content and saying, wow, I, I never thought about that, right? Like, I never thought about what it was, what a Uyghur perspective on American politics would be like. Or Yvonne published the piece in the Washington Post on a Zimbabwean's perspective on the January 6th committee, right? The importance of accountability from someone who comes from a country where there never was any accountability. What does that mean? And so, again, we got feedback very early on of people who were basically saying, we'd never thought about that. And these were people that you wouldn't expect. You know, on like the January 6th commission and stuff like that, we were hearing from folks on the right. And then when, you know, we were talking about the importance of recognizing the U.S. as a force for good in the world, right, and the dangers of self-flagellation, we would hear from folks on the left. They would actually think very similarly, like, oh, wow, I, I hadn't thought about that perspective. I hadn't thought about what someone from Africa or China or whatever, how they might uh, uh, react to that. So that was so initially sort of that gave me a sense that things were moving in the right direction. And then as the program grew, we were able to start doing more uh, quantitative metrics. Since then, 
we've actually we have commissioned uh, a survey to see sort of some of the impact of some of the content that we've put out. And we've actually found that there is an impact of roughly 7%. So we basically had people watch roughly five minutes of video content. And we found that there was a 7% difference in their perception of the risks posed to the free world by an international alliance of dictators, uh, where uh, 7% more people realized that there exists an international alliance of dictators and that they pose a threat to us. That is 7%, I would assume, of those people who receive the dose, more or less, the people who... So then it becomes a question to have real sizable impact of scaling that so that lots of people hear what you're saying or what you're helping to have said. Where are you on that? And what what is the plan as we go forward? We're a startup. We are a startup organization. So, you know, the polling data, by the way, that 7% that I just referenced, that's based on polling data that I received like two weeks ago. It was very, very recent, right? So we are literally at the early stages of pulling this together. Is that from what you were talking about before we started recording with Mindy Finn and her organization? That poll, Actually, that yes, done? that's right. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So your previous uh, recent guest, guest yes, <laughs> a collaborator with you. That's right. Your recent guest of yours is was our collaborator on this effort, her company. It's given me kind of great hope. And, and the next step here goes to one of my other core responsibilities, which is fundraising. My job now is to go out to convey this message to talk about, look, we have this hypothesis. We've had qualitative instances where we've seen positive trends, and we now have some quantitative metrics as well. And we now need to scale this. We need to start putting money into paid media. We need to start putting out more of this content. And by the way, one other thing I should note is that there is examples of other quantitative data that actually also supports this hypothesis. I actually almost forgot that there was a survey that came out of Stanford, which had a very similar hypothesis where they tested the impact of some videos from Zimbabwe and other unfree countries experiencing electoral unrest on whether or not people would be more concerned about the impacts of January 6th. And what they found was that there was a difference. That, that those videos had an impact on people and that people were more able to recognize the dangers that January 6th posed to the American democratic experiment. So now it's, it's all about fundraising. It's all about creating additional content and being super creative about it as well. That's something that's really important where, look, we are not a media outlet like CNN is or, or MSNBC or any of these places. We are a startup nonprofit. We live online, and that means we need to think about how to be edgy, how to evoke emotion, how to get people to react to these topics in ways that are emotional and not just intellectual. What response do you have so far to the efforts to fundraise for this? It's a notoriously difficult thing to do to take an idea like this and get enough dollars behind it to really change things. It's a work in progress. We have a number of donors who have already supported us, who continue to support us, and for which we're very grateful. But needless to say, we need to expand and diversify. What would you like to raise? The answer is always going to be more. My goal, you know, for Frontlines of Freedom specifically, over the course of, let's say, the next 18 months, I think it's absolutely realistic for us to raise roughly, you know, at least $5 million. We've already raised seven figures uh, in the past. And so I think $5 million for the next year would be, I think, a perfectly realistic sum of money. I think you could find one donor who could give you $5 million. That's very true. You find one human, one person who's really motivated by this and, and who's willing to give. So who knows? Perhaps they're listening to this podcast right now. Or someone can pass it to them. One of the things that is obviously of a concern is there was a lot of people with wonderful ideas like you have right now, you and your and your whole organization. And yeah, It's definitely and, not me. Definitely not me alone right. here. <laughs> Right. And then there are these giant megaphones of Trump saying one thing and people listening to him and Bannon and and Fox News. And it's really important to find a way to to have the same level of communication as what's going on in a pro right wing authoritarian uh, echo chamber that's out there as well. 
I, I could not agree with you more. That's the key challenge that's facing us, right? There's so many people in our space who are speaking about such important things related to democracy. One of our advisors, Ann Applebaum, right, who writes these incredible long-form pieces in The Atlantic, a good friend of mine, David French in The New York Times. There's all these folks who think a lot about democracy, and they come at it from left, they come at it from right. But the key challenge is that the honest truth is that online, in the online media landscape, the people who dominate right now are the radicals, right? I mean, we recently put out a, a video going after this guy named Jackson Hinkle. Uh, do you know who that is? I don't. So in that case, I apologize for bringing your attention to him. <laughs> oh, no. Jackson is this 24, 25-year-old guy. He calls himself a MAGA communist, believe it or not. That is weird. Yep. He has the unique honor of supporting both Hamas and Vladimir Putin. They are aligned. Those they two. are. Exactly. Yeah. It, ma- it makes sense. It makes sense. You yeah. support one, you're going to support the other. That actually makes a lot of sense. And one of the key messages, incidentally, that we have is that these guys are in, in, a, in, in um, concert, working together in concert with one another. But so on the one hand, look, I think a lot of mainstream organizations, and the reason that you probably don't know who he is, is because you would look at this, like you would naturally look at this person and, and dismiss them as irrelevant right? Like this is not a serious individual. He is not a good faith person. He's not someone worth thinking about debating, engaging with or whatever. And doing so would only demean you. And in one way you're right. But in the other way, this guy's got two and a half million followers. Some of his videos are incredibly popular online. You look at Andrew Tate, you know, that's someone you may be familiar with. He's a kickboxing chauvinist who's got, I think, about 7 million followers. And he's so dangerous that in the UK, there was actually uh, communication in school systems about the negative influence that he was having on young boys between the ages of 14 and 18. And so we ignore these people at our own peril. We cannot, unfortunately, think of ourselves as above them, as, as separate from them. This idea of like, well, we, we should just not give them any more oxygen, just ignore them and so forth. It doesn't work because unfortunately now with social media, with all of this other online ecosystem, they're able to get their message out. And if nobody is competing with them, then they're going to win unopposed. Well, we do have progressive influencers doing their videos online. I'm not sure that it's at the same scale, but I've talked to people who have hundreds of thousands or millions of followers who are tackling some sides of this. I was interested when you talked about working with CNN and doing that collaboration, but it seems like collaborations maybe are leading to this with influencers should be in your future as well. A hundred percent. Collaborations with online influencers is going to be a core part of our strategy, as is, to be honest, the way that I'm speaking with you now, by the way, isn't isn't going to be the same tone and the same language that, you know, we're necessarily going to use in the videos. And our message is going to be identical. We don't change the message. And you can't speak to the 10% of the country that is highly political, college educated and listening to a political podcast. This is going to be fought in non-college educated white people in Michigan or that's exactly right. I encourage folks, there's an article written in Vanity Fair back in 2018 called Let Me Make You Famous, which is about the rise of Ben Shapiro. And I'll encourage folks to read that because we need to understand that uh, the way that the loudest voices in the room are fighting this battle is not by using the language that you and I are using right now. And it's not in the pages of The Atlantic or The New York Times, but rather it's on TikTok, it's on Instagram, it's on YouTube. Our plan is we are going to be engaging with other influencers, and we are also going to be creating content in a way that, one, prioritizes these values, that highlights, look, here are the the things that we believe in, and we're going to be consistent about that, but we're going to be doing it in a way that's emotionally resonant. And this goes back to the dissident stories. So people who have been exiled from their home countries, who have risked everything for freedom in some way, shape, or form, those are people whose stories are emotionally resonant. And I believe and I hope that there will be a way for us to compete with some of the demagogues that are out there who are trying to to spew some of their nonsense. And so that that kind of goes to the core of our strategy. And so on the one hand, you know, we're going to have to sort of get our hands dirty. We're going to have to engage in ways that it might not necessarily always be my preference to engage. But on the other hand, I think that's the only way to win. I think that's the only way for us to actually effectively compete with some of these guys.
one of the sets of people that I've interviewed of late was were people building connections between influencers and progressive activists or progressive organizations. Have you made any of those connections like Ashwath Narayanan at Social Current is one example. There's a number of people who are trying to make these connections. A lot of the coalition building that we've done so far has been primarily in the international space or in the specifically pro-democracy space, right? So organizations like Freedom House, things like that. We, I'm very happy to build partnerships in spaces beyond that, including in conservative spaces and progressive spaces and so forth. Is there a question that I should have asked you that I failed to? I think we covered a lot. The biggest thing that scares me, though, is what is the counterfactual? What happens if we don't do this work? What comes next? I think that bifurcates to what happens if we win in 2024 on the presidential level and maybe in Congress? And what happens if we lose? Because in either case, the fight is going to have to continue, but it's going to be a very different fight. So I think kind of the note that I can end on, which is relevant to this, is that I hear a lot of folks basically say that if Donald Trump wins, then they will leave the country. And I always look at them like, you can't give up that easily. It's a little too soon to run away before the whole fall of the country, which is would be a long way to go. Right. It's yeah. exactly. It is, you know, it, it is. Uh, I understand the impulse, though. Just imagining dealing with four more years of that guy. Uh, uh, it's, <laughs> believe me, yeah, not, not something I particularly relish doing, but it's far too early to write America's obituary now. And the example that I point to is Poland, right? Poland went through eight years of a kind of quasi wannabe authoritarian government. And yet today, those who prioritize democracy and freedom and so forth have won, and they are very quickly moving to undo some of the damage that has been done over the last eight years and bring Poland back into the sort of family of liberal democratic nations. I might be overstepping my welcome here, but I feel like I neglected to ask you about Ukraine and how this all fits in right now, that war. Do you want to just take one swing at that? Yes, that's an incredibly important question, especially because that has been our overwhelming, that has been RDI's overwhelming focus over the last two years. I mean, I think a lot of folks are talking about Ukraine, so I think it's perfectly appropriate for us to have focused on on what we focused on talking about. I agree that we'd be very much remiss if we didn't bring it up. I want to highlight that Ukraine is the literal front line in the global fight between freedom and authoritarianism. It's not even an altruistic question, right? I mean, I think that's part of it, right? Like we need to do what is right uh, in a moral and ethical sense of the word. And what is right, of course, is defending a free people trying to protect their freedom, their families, their homes. Again, going back to this idea of people being motivated by self-interest. And I hear a lot about that from American voters of like, well, why should I care about this? Like, I understand it's the right thing to do, but we've got problems here at home. Well, you know, the fact is it's in our interest to be supporting Ukraine and to be supporting them with absolutely everything we've got, because right now they are the ones who are risking life and limb. All that we're doing essentially is we are providing them with weapons, with money, but we are not risking a single American life. It kind of reminds me of this anecdote that I'd hear kind of growing up where you're on a farm and you have a a chicken and a pig uh, hanging out together. And uh, the chicken goes up to the pig and he says, together, you and I can solve world hunger. And the pig looks to the chicken and he says, you know what? You're right. We could. But here's the thing. Solving world hunger would require just a donation from you. For me, it would be a commitment. And so I think that's kind of the core difference right now, where Ukrainians are the ones making the commitment. We're just making a donation. And if Ukraine loses, which I should note is possible if we do not give them the aid that they need, if the supplemental does not pass Congress, they could lose. It might even be probable. It could be. I got to tell you, the news from the front lines is not positive right now. Ukrainians are rationing artillery shells and ammunition and other things because they just are not getting the aid that they need from us and from Europe and the aid that, quite frankly, we promised them. We have not been delivering. And if that happens, if, God forbid, Putin advances and we get either A, a frozen conflict, or B, even worse, just a straight up Russian victory, well, then the world would be about to become a, an incredibly dangerous place.
they will then move to the next country. They'll move to the Baltics. Who knows? And and the second they touch a NATO country, right? I mean, again, Putin is all about uh, data. Then it becomes what? Then we're then we're involved head to head. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Then it's going to be. I can't even imagine the bloodshed, you know, because I hear a lot of folks saying, well, what if Putin uses a nuke? What if Putin uses a, uses a nuke? And and my response to that is always, look, I can't guarantee that he won't, but I can tell you that I think the likelihood of him using a nuke goes up with every day that this conflict goes on. And if this conflict ends without a Ukrainian victory, then the likelihood of him using a nuke actually increases significantly because then what happens is he decides, well, look, if the Allies ultimately were unable to come together in defense of Ukraine, despite all of their pronouncements to the contrary, who's to say that they're going to come together in defense of Lithuania, this tiny little country of 2 million people, which is a member of NATO, who's to say they're going to come in defense of Lithuania? And then he could well attack, there's a miscalculation, whatever. And that's the point at which we we truly enter the territory of nuclear war. You're definitely someone I could talk to all week rather than just for an hour plus. I appreciate you taking the time. Anything else you want to say? No. I mean, look, if, if anyone who's listening is interested uh, in learning more about the Renew Democracy Initiative, is interested in reaching out and working with us, I really would encourage you to go to rdi.org, Renew Democracy Initiative, so rdi.org. Take a look at what we're doing and feel free to reach out to us, info at rdi.org. That was Uriel Epstein. He is at rdi.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.